Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to go. You guys doing good this morning? Everybody doing okay? It's, it's great, great to be together. You know, several years ago, I was listening to a comedian who, at the time, he was kind of at the height of his career trajectory. He had a sitcom that was doing really well. Every time he would go on tour, he was selling out arenas in just a matter of minutes. He was just kind of in that phase of his journey. And I remember listening to a really fascinating interview that eventually became a book out of that season of his life. But he he talked about how challenging it was to professionally be able to succeed in such a grand scale and yet relationally feel like he was struggling. And he told this story of just how crazy it was that if his name was on a marquee, people would pay massive amounts of money to come sit in a huge room and to listen to him speak. But when it came to finding deep relationships that were anchored in a place of love, he felt like he was just striking out over and over and over. There's this disconnect for him. And so he told this story that maybe some of you would relate to. He was telling the story in the context of his romantic relationships and how there was this, this girl that he had fallen for, they had been talking, they were in that kind of weird no man's land, are we together, are we not, are we talking, just kind of that weird thing that people do now, and kind of in that space, and they go on a few dates and it goes well, and then all of a sudden she just begins to ghost him. She's not re- replying to his text messages, won't return any of his calls, and he said all of a sudden he found himself face to face with the reality that he knew all too well, and it was a reality that when it comes to love and relationships, he knows he wants it, he knows he needs it, but he has no idea how to find it. So in the interview, he goes on to tell this story of one night showing up at this small comedy club to kind of work out some new material, and he's there in this crowd of people, and he's going through the bit just mechanically almost, and he said he gets halfway through his set, and he just feels empty inside. He's heartbroken over this love that's kind of falling apart on him. And so instead of telling jokes, he decided to spend the rest of the night just talking with the audience about the frustration of finding love in the modern world. And I'll never forget what he said. There's just this question that he kind of posed to the audience that eventually became the basis of the book that he wrote. He said, in a world filled with seven billion people, every one of which needs relationships, wants relationships, needs love and wants love, in a world where all of us need and want this same thing, why is it seemingly so impossible to find? Like, why is it so hard? to find like that one thing that we need. I remember just listening like, oh man, that resonates. We all need relationship, we all want relationship, we all need love and want love. Why at times is it so difficult? I remember a similar conversation I had with my dad a couple of years later. My dad had just celebrated 40 years of pastoral ministry and he was reflecting back on his time of serving in local churches. And I said, dad, of all the things that you've experienced, all the cultural shifts, that you've experienced over the last 40 years, what's been the most challenging thing you faced over the last, uh, last little season of ministry? And I don't know what I was expecting him to say. I think I sort of expected him to say, well, the culture's view of the Bible has changed or rampant immorality you know, has taken over. I don't know what I thought he would say, but he paused for about 30 seconds and he looked at me and he said, it's really easy. He said, over the last decade, it seems as though the average adult has lost the ability to make and sustain deep, meaningful relationships. So over the last decade, it seems as though the average adult has lost the ability to make and sustain deep and meaningful relationships. He said years ago, people would show up at our church and they knew how to do relationships, so all I had to do was teach them how to live out the ways of Jesus in those relationships. He said, but now people show up and they don't know how to find deep relationships in the cultural craziness that we're in. And so before I can even teach them how to live out the ways of Jesus, I have to teach them how to become friends. Because the gospel is something that cannot be experienced in its fullness 
if we're walking in isolation. And I don't know what your, your story has been. Like, as I think back on my own story, I remember moving to Nashville years ago for college and uh, I hardly knew anybody in the city. And I remember coming to Nashville and here's what I discovered. Maybe you, you found this to be true. I hope this isn't your story. What I found was that Nashville is like the friendliest place like uh, on the surface. But man, going deep with people takes some time. Like everybody you meet, it's like, man, yes, I would love to hang out. Yes, I would love to get coffee. Okay, when do you wanna do that? June, 2020. Okay, wow, it's like, uh, okay, I guess we'll be friends in a year. And what I found in our city is it's easy to get to somebody's front door. It's really tough to get into the living room. And it just leaves us with this sense of, man, is there something wrong with me? Like, is there something wrong with me? Like, is there something about me that is, is tough to commit to? It's tough to dive deep with? Is there something about me? And I'd argue that that is like the ache of our generation. It's the ache of our culture. You know, Cigna, a huge healthcare provider, was recently doing uh, research on the epidemic of loneliness all across the world, but they kind of honed in on what was happening in North America. And this study just blew my mind. They, they, they researched thousands upon thousands of adults and they discovered that 53% of all North American adults express experiencing deep loneliness on a regular basis. That 51% of all adults said they struggled to have a meaningful conversation with somebody that they knew loved them and cared about them on a daily basis. But the reality is in a room like this, where you're surrounded by people, it is really easy to feel totally alone. I remember moving to the city and I'm an extreme extrovert. So the idea of like showing up in a crowd, I wanna meet every one of you. That's the one I wanna do today before you leave. I'm like, I wanna know all your names. I wanna talk to everybody. But I remember coming here as an extreme extrovert, even with that desire and showing up in a huge church on my first weekend in town going, okay, I know we're supposed to be all in this together, but I don't know if anybody knows me, loves me or cares. And for years, just floating around between churches in the city going, okay, how do I live out this thing called the gospel? And here's what I'm convinced of. It's in the midst of this oppressive loneliness and struggle to find love and connectivity that the ways of Jesus offer so much hope and vitality. And in the midst of this, Jesus looks out at his disciples. And if you remember in the Lord's Prayer, they've come to him and they say, Jesus, you connect with God in ways that nobody else connects with God. Would you teach us how to do what you've done? Would you show us how to do what you're doing? And I love this because Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, he's not giving them a religious formula. He's not saying, hey, here's seven things that you do in order to get God to bless you. It's not a religious formula. It's a relational framework. Jesus says, I wanna teach you how to see the world the way that I see it, through the context of relationships so you can experience what I experience. This is what he says. You can see the verses up on the screen. He says, this then is how you should pray. He says, our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we looked at the last couple of weeks. Jesus says, hey, here's the deal. He says, if you want to, to experience the meaning and the life and the beauty of the gospel, it starts with you understanding relationally that you're not just a human being on this little spinning mud ball called earth trying to connect with a distant random spiritual force. He says, you have a heavenly father and your father is the king. He loves you, he knows you. He's capable of doing infinitely more than you could ask or imagine. So you're struggling to pay the rent. And he says, man, do you know who your father is? 
Do you know who he is? He says, I want you to see, like this is your father. You have a father and he's the king. It's what we talked about the last couple of weeks. But I love this. He doesn't stop with this image of our father. If you start reading between the lines, he says, let me give you a picture of your family. It keeps going like this. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, give us, that's plural. (laughs) He says, give us today our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There's this moment where Jesus says, man, you wanna connect with God. Here's what you have to understand. First and foremost, he's not just an abstract being. He is your father who knows you. He loves you. He's the king of all kings, the Lord of the universe. And not only is he your father, but he has birthed you into a family filled with brothers and sisters, whether you understand it or not. So he's birthed you into a family. That this thing that we're doing together or this thing that we're trying to do together demands that when we go into the prayer closet to pray, it's not God, give me my daily bread, forgive me of my sins, deliver me of you. No, it's, it's God, would you give us our? Would you forgive us of our? Would you deliver us from our? Why? Because he says, you were not born into the kingdom of God as an only child. When you're born into the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're given a family, brothers and sisters. And just like your biological family, you're gonna like some of your brothers and sisters and you're gonna hate some of your brothers and sisters maybe, but you've been born into a family. And if you're a Christian, and if you're a Christian, this is true of you. You know, one of my favorite days was the, the day that each of my children was born. I think back to November 6, 2014, when my youngest son, Judah, was born. And we've got this picture that hangs on our bedroom wall. It's taken shortly after he met his brothers for the first time. This is my, yeah, you can say all oh, if you want. Now, this is my older son, Judah, who's mouth kissing him in an awkward way. And uh, my next son, Jack, you can tell that Judah's our third born. We're not worried about germs. You know, he's getting sneezed in the face and kissed on the mouth and dropped off the bed. And and I just try to think about, man, what would it have been like, you know, if you could remember your birth, you'd be in counting forever, but just imagine you could remember your birth. I mean, just think about how crazy it was for Judah. There's this moment where he is like in this dark, warm, wet womb, and I'm not gonna get much more detail than that. And then <laughs> there's no pictures for the rest of this. You know, he, he emerges into the world like this, this moment, and all of a sudden he meets his parents, And he doesn't just meet his parents, but all of a sudden there's these kind of bobble-headed, half-baby, half-toddler things looking over him and loving on him and kissing on him and holding on to him. And and I go, man, he was born not just in a relationship with Sydney and I. He was immediately born into a family where what did he have beside him? He had brothers. He had brothers. And so the, the question is not, will he have brothers? The question is, what kind of brothers will he have? What kind of brother will he become? Like if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus says, here's the reality. He says, you've been birthed into this thing called the kingdom of God if you're a Christian and all of a sudden you have a father who's the king, but you don't just have a father. You look up and you have all these brothers and sisters. In other words, the moment you begin to see God vertically, we begin to see each other different horizontally. When your vertical vision changes, things change horizontally. And you realize no longer are you just sitting in a room with a bunch of strangers that are crowding out your space in a hot bar on a Sunday listening to some songs and consuming a sermon. You go, I'm sitting in a room with people just like I was birthed into a physical family surrounded by others. I've been birthed into the kingdom of God and I'm surrounded by my siblings. So the question is not if you have a family. The question is what kind of family are you becoming? And what I'm convinced of is this is something we all know we need. 
It's something we, we all know that we want. Never in all of my years of pastoral ministry have I ever sat down with a person and said, hey, tell me your vision of church. And never once has somebody responded back, hey, here's my vision of church. I would love to show up downtown, fight for a parking space, get in a crowded room with a broken air conditioner, sit uncomfortably close to somebody that I don't know who's wearing too much perfume, on chairs that are uncomfortable, to sing songs that I don't know and hear a sermon that I won't apply. I've never heard anybody say, that's my vision for church, and yet it's the vision for church that most of us settle for. You haven't joined an organization or a spiritual country club. <laughs> that one's stick a little close. <laughs> You've been birthed into a family. You've been birthed into a family, and the question is, what kind of family are we gonna become? And, and in this world where we know we need this, we know we want this, why is it so tough to find it? And I think before we can unpack how we live it out, I think we have to understand what are some of the cultural forces that make it possible for you to sit in a room like this and to affirm that you need this and want this and yet leave here and never get it? What are some of the things that, that make that challenging? We could probably list a hundred of them if we took time. I'll just give you a few. I think one of the challenges to living out the ways of Jesus right here and right now is the fact that we live in a world marked by radical individualism. In other words, we've constantly been told that I is more important than we. That my needs, my wants, my desires take precedent over the needs, the wants, the desires of the community. And we have to understand, historically speaking, this way of thinking individually is a very new concept in the course of human history. Most societies, most people groups, most families came to the table with the assumption that the needs, the desires, the well-being of the community took precedent over the needs of the one. But we live in a country that has been built off of reversing that reality to convince you that you're at the center of the universe and that you do whatever it takes to make sure your needs, wants, and desires are fulfilled no matter what it does to the community around you. Now, here's my question. In a biological family, if every person in the family is thinking that way, what sort of family do you have? It's a terrible family. What happens when that sort of radical individualism creeps its way into the church? We don't operate as a family of God. We become a spiritual organization where we come to consume spiritual goods and services. And so you can want this kind of family and you can need this kind of family, but in a world of radical individualism, it's possible to miss out on it. What's, a, what's another one? I, I would call the second one this fear of relationally missing out, kind of relational FOMO. This constant tendency that some of us operate with, like some of you on Friday night this week, you could not make plans, you could not commit to anything because you were scared that something better may come along. I won't make you raise your hands, but you know I'm preaching the truth. Like there are some of you here going, man, I'm like, oh, it's tough. It's tough, this fear of missing out. This fear that if I go all in here, something better is gonna come along and I'll miss out there. And what happens is a lot of us end, out, end up living in isolation, not because we want to, but just because we've been so dominated by fear of opportunity. It's like we're standing in a grocery aisle you're trying to figure out what sort of cereal that you want. There's like 9,000 different kinds of cereals. And some of us feel that way relationally. When everything feels like an option, it becomes paralyzing. Think about a conversation I had with a young guy recently who had been dating just an unbelievably godly woman. She was way out of his league. All of us knew it. He didn't know it. 
you know, and he's trying to figure out, should I propose to her? And I, I, he sits down, we're having this conversation. He says, Dave, I'm scared that if, if I pull the trigger and I put a ring on the finger, somebody better may come along. True story, out of his mouth. And I'm thinking, like, um, bro, that should be the least of your worries. Like, <laughs> she is way out of your league. Like, you should be fearful. Like, you should put a ring on the finger today. Like, elope. Get engaged, like get married one day, get away. Like she's gonna discover she's better than you in every way. <laughs> and he's paralyzed. He had, this, he had this relationship that he needed and that he wanted and, and yet he couldn't pull the trigger. It's a place of fear. What if someone better comes along? And what happens romantically happens relationally all the time in the context of spiritual community. You'll be here and going, man, I wonder if there's something better over at that church or that place or over here and here. And we never experience the life-giving reality of the gospel because we're bouncing from one place to the next to the next to the next, so scared we're gonna miss out. And you want what Jesus has. But radical individualism, fear of missing out. I'll give you another one. Pervasive busyness. Raise your hand if you've just been overwhelmed by the busyness. Come on, tell the truth. You're in church. Don't be too cool. Have you ever just felt that pressure? You're like sitting down with somebody that you love and it's like, man, let's hang out. When do you want to hang out? You get out your calendars and it's like, well, I guess we'll hang out next decade. You know, that's, that's it. And it's like depressing. In, in a city where everybody's moving so fast, man, it's hard. It's hard to have gospel relationships when your calendar has no room for gospel relationship. Deep relationships do not fit very neatly in those little calendar slots. And in a world where everybody is so busy, so full, so overwhelmed, getting the thing that Jesus is inviting us into feels really tough. It's radical individualism, it's fear of missing out, it's, it's extreme pervasive busyness. Another one is idealism. We worship at the altar of ideal community and we miss out on real community. I remember when I was in college, I'm not picking on college students. In fact, yeah, you're some of my favorite people on the, on the planet. But I remember when I was in college, I, I worshiped at the altar of ideal Christian community for a season. And you know, it's like, man, what are you looking for in Christian community? I'm like, man, I'm looking for people to live together and work together and charge the ends of the earth together. And we don't need insurance and we don't need any, you know, it's like, we're gonna take care of each other's needs and we're gonna do this. And I remember sitting down with the guy that was the pastor of the church that I was attending at that time. And I was just telling him about this angst in me for like Christian community. And he said, he said, well, how are you and your friends trying to live that out right now? I thought, uh, <laughs> we're not. And I realized I'd spent so much time worshiping at the altar of the ideal that I never was willing to make the sacrifices for what was real. The real people, the real community, like right in front of me. Like what's it look like to dig down with these folks? Remember several years ago, one of my friends, he was in the Coast Guard, he got stationed on this little island off the coast of Alaska. It was basically an iceberg. It was he and four other guys living in an airplane hangar for two years and miserable setting, you know. And, and I remember the first six months he was there, he was just depressed and lonely and bitter. And I remember having conversations with him and I'm like, how do you like the guys that live with you? And he's like, I hate them. He's like, I wish there were other people here that shared my interests and my likes and my desires. But something happened about six months in where all of a sudden his perspective began to radically shift. I thought, man, did new people show up? And he said, no. He said, I just made the decision that instead of sitting around in isolation, waiting for ideal people to show up, I would just commit to the real guys that were right in front of me and we'd figure out how to be friends. And over the course of the next 18 months, they became some of his best friends. 
And I go, in, in this world where we go, man, yes, Jesus, we want just crazy, awesome community. We've got to be careful that the vision of the ideal doesn't diminish our ability to engage what's real. There's individualism, there's fear, there's busyness, there's idealism. I'll just give you one more. I think for some of you, it's pain. For some of you, it's pain. You have thrown yourself so fully into Christian community and it's never been reciprocated. And you just go, man, I'm tired of playing this like one-way game. Or for some of you, it, it's you entrusted yourself to community and they hurt you, they abused you, they wounded you, they sinned against you, they abandoned you, and you go, man, I don't wanna go back there. I don't wanna do that again. And so if we're not careful, we can sit in a place like this and we can hear the profound vision of Jesus where he says, here's how you connect with God. You understand that he's your father, the king, and he's birthed you into a family. You can hear it, but never step into it because of all the places of pain and busyness and idealism and fear and individuality that just dominates the day. And if we're not careful, we'll show up in a place like this on a Sunday morning and on all surface levels, we will look and function like a community, but at the heart level, we're not actually one. And it's easy to become nothing more than a collection of strangers that are missing out on the fullness of what Jesus has called us to. And here's the beauty is, is if you've struggled with this, I've struggled with this. I know we've all struggled with this on some level. If you've ever struggled with this, the invitation of Jesus is, is real. And, and I just wanna invite you going, man, I need you. Like in order for me to see Christ, I've got to be in community with you and you need me and we need each other. But it only works if there's this full-blown commitment to change the lens by which we see each other and no longer are we random people that attend a service together, but we say, Lord, we want to become the family that you've made us to be. I love how the prayer keeps going. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You get down to verse 11. Look back at verse 11 with me. He says, give us today our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I love this moment where Jesus says, hey, here's the deal. It is your Father who provides for your every need. It is your Father that gives daily bread. It is your Father that forgives you of sins. It is your heavenly Father that delivers you from evil. But here's the reality, is the faithfulness of your Father almost always travels through the hands of your family. The faithfulness of the Father almost always travels through the hands of your family. It's like that moment where Jesus is on the hillside feeding the multitudes and they don't have enough food to feed the multitudes. And so they grab this little schoolboy and they steal his lunch or they borrow it or whatever they do. And then Jesus prays for it and he multiplies it. You remember that story? Who did the provision come from? It came from the Father. It came from God. The, the ability to feed the masses came from God. But who did the provision get distributed by? The family. One person, Corey, you got it. Like the family. The bread and fish were passed through the hands of the family. And this is the way it works in the kingdom of God. You can pray the Lord's prayer by yourself. You cannot experience it by yourself. You can pray it on your own in a closet. You can say the words, but you cannot experience it unless you choose to walk in the context of a family because the faithfulness of the father often passes through the hands of his kids. Think about years ago, right after our oldest son was born, I had a Jeep Wrangler that I loved. I loved it too much, probably sinful, just a confession. But I loved that Jeep and it died. And our church was a small little church at the time made up of mostly college students. 
And to this day, I have no idea who did this, but a group of college students pulled their money together and bought me a Buick LeSabre, which I was grateful for, a little disappointed. A little disappointed in the, in the shape that the provision took in this old lady car, you know, but, uh, but, but I just remember going, oh, wow, like this is the way the Lord's Prayer works. I asked the Lord for what I needed as my brothers and sisters were asking the Lord for what we needed and they saw a need and they took care of it. The faithfulness of the Father, it flows through the hands of the family. It's the way we experience forgiveness. I think about a friend of mine years ago, shipwrecked his life. He's on the verge of committing suicide on multiple occasions. And he talked about knowing intellectually that he'd been forgiven by God, but he couldn't believe it emotionally in his heart until he kept showing up in his house church and his house church kept saying, you are forgiven, you are loved. Jesus Christ did pay for that sin. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Dave, he said, he said I knew that I was forgiven. He said, but I did not experience the forgiveness of my father truly until I saw it on the faces of my sisters and brothers. That's why James says, confess your sins to one another and you experience healing. Why? God's already forgiven you. You share it with each other. And you experience the face of your Father. You can pray the Lord's Prayer by yourself. You can't experience it alone, though. He provides for your needs through the hands of the family. He forgives sins and you experience it in the context of your family. He brings about deliverance in the context of a family. I think about a woman several years ago who's getting abused by her husband. We didn't know that was going on, but some guys in their house church found out this was going on. And they showed up with, with both tenderness and strength at the house to help deliver this woman from the context of the situation. And they're speaking with her husband. They say, hey, here's the deal. You cannot come into the house of God and raise your hands towards God and then go home and raise your hands against your wife. And they helped release the woman out of this place of great pain, great struggle, who did the deliverance come from? Came from her father. Who was it delivered through? Her family, her family. And Jesus says, this is what you're being invited into. And the reality is sometimes we experience it as the recipients, as the provision of the forgiveness, as the deliverance comes to us. And sometimes we get to experience it as the conduits, the one through whom it flows. But Jesus says, here's the deal. This is what you're getting invited into. Okay, so how do we, in the midst of a culture that's overrun by radical individualism and fear of missing out and busyness and idealism and pain, how do we as a group of followers of Jesus in this cultural moment start living out what God has called us to right here and right now? And I'll just give us a few things to hold on to as we go into this fall season together. I think it starts with us understanding that the kingdom of God is built off of covenantal relationships, not contractual relationships. A contract says, I'll stay in this as long as you meet your end of the bargain, and you'll stay in this as long as I meet your end of the bar my end of the bargain. Our world is built off of contracts. We treat everything contractually, including relationships, marriage, and church. But the kingdom of God is built on the context of covenant, where you say, hey, I'm gonna make a covenantal commitment towards you. Just like God made towards planet Earth and all of humanity when he sent Jesus. He said, I'm making a covenantal commitment to you. Here's my son whom I love, and he's gonna die for your sins and be raised before you've done anything to deserve it. While you are still sinners, Christ died for you. That's the covenantal posture of the Father's heart towards us. And so we come into these relationships going, hey, we're coming here out of a posture of covenant. Like Sydney and I, we've been married almost 15 years. 
And what makes it work is the context of covenant. There's times when we have moments of intense fellowship, or some people would call them fights, you know, where we get in these moments where we're just not seeing eye to eye, but we go into those moments together going, we're gonna make this thing work out. Why? Because we don't go into the argument trying to feel it out. We go into the argument with our minds made up. We're in this. And so let's find healing. I go, can you imagine what happened in a church context if we started entering into community together saying, hey, here's the deal. We're not here feeling this thing out. We're here committed to God first, to one another second, and we believe God's gonna do something amazing as we commit ourselves to each other that way. It's covenantal. And when covenant becomes the basis of relationship, oh my goodness, stuff starts flowing out of it. Things begin to happen. All of a sudden, we start living with this sense of shared identity. So we talked about a few weeks ago where you understand you're not a consumer here receiving songs and sermons and spiritual goods and services. You're a beloved child of God. He, is, he has brought you into relationship with who he is. He has put you on a mission. He's given you responsibility. And you're sitting in a room of other beloved children who have been put on that same mission. We begin to operate out of this covenantal soil with a sense of shared identity. And we view each other very, very differently through that context. Because we go, man, we're in this together. Think about with my biological brother and sister. I mean, like, I love them to death. They were both here at the nine o'clock this morning. And and the reality is nobody has to give me a sermon. Nobody has to give me a, a, a PowerPoint slide to tell me to care for their needs. Why? Because we have a shared identity. We came from the same parents, birthed in the same blood. We're, we're like this. And things change when we see each other that way. Out of the soil of covenant, there's identity. Out of the soil of covenantal relationships, there's proximity. There's a commitment saying, hey, if we're gonna live this out together, it's gonna require lots and lots and lots and lots of time together in the same space. It's gonna require lots and lots of time together in the same space. 10 years ago, there's a fascinating um, uh, research uh, that was done, a, a report came out that was studying the habits of people that considered themselves highly committed followers of Jesus. 10 years ago, this report uh, kind of uh, put out there that 10 years ago, if you're a highly committed follower of Jesus, chances were that you would be with your spiritual community in some form two to three times per week. So over the course of a year, you'd be with your faith community 150 times a year. Last year, they ran that same study and they discovered that among those that considered themselves to be highly committed followers of Jesus, most of them only spent quality time with their community of faith two to three times per month. Over the course of one decade, we went from seeing each other 150 times a year to seeing each other 30 times a year. And we go, man, why is it so hard to go deep? When a culture of individualism and fear and busyness and idealism and pain, we pull back from community and instead of going deeper when it comes to proximity, we see each other only occasionally and we wonder why all of our relationships are a mile wide and an inch deep. But out of covenant, there's this shared identity. There's this commitment to proximity. There's this longing for face-to-face vulnerability. Face-to-face is key. I remember years ago going to lunch with a guy from church. We sat down for like two hours, talked about everything, or at least I thought we had. We get to the end of the conversation. I'm driving back to the office, and I call Sydney. And she said, how'd it go? And we're talking. She said, did he mention any of the stuff he's, uh, did he mention any of the stuff that he's been talking about online? 
I thought, what stuff? And then I get back to the office and I, I pull up my phone and it's like, oh my goodness, this guy just posted this huge post about all this stuff he's going through. And over the course of two hours, he hadn't shared any of it. And I go, we live in a culture where we've learned how to be vulnerable digitally, but no longer interpersonally. And the kingdom of God requires interpersonal face-to-face vulnerability. How do you know somebody needs daily bread? How do you know somebody needs forgiveness? How do you know somebody needs deliverance? It's when you're vulnerable face-to-face. Out of the culture of covenant, there is intimacy, there is proximity, there is vulnerability. I'll just give you one more. And there is shared empathy. There's shared empathy. There's a difference between empathy and pity. Pity says, oh, I see what you're going through and I feel sorry for you. Empathy says, I see what you're going through and I will be sorry with you. I will come near, I will get down in the midst of it. I will help you carry the burden that you're walking through. And I go, this is when we begin to experience gospel community. When I see Stan and I go, okay, Stan, if your dinner table is empty, but mine is full, I cannot pray the Lord's prayer unless we're walking this thing out, we're meeting the needs together. Because I don't wanna just pray the prayer, I wanna experience it. If Corey has a place of pain in his life and unforgiveness, I go, man, I, I can't keep moving forward unless Corey and I have walked through this thing together. Why? Because a family is only as strong, it is only as happy as its saddest, weakest, most pain-filled member. And the moment we become a church family, in the presence of our Heavenly Father, we start bearing these things together. It's the reason getting in the Word and getting in prayer is so important because the more vertical you get with God, the more radically we begin to live horizontally with one another. And I go, guys, in a world that is marked by pervasive loneliness and isolation, can you imagine what would happen if the people of God got serious about this? I think this would become our greatest witness. (laughs) So Jesus talked about in John chapter 13, verse 35, he says, the world will know that you're with me, not because you gave all your money away, because you did all those nice things in public. He said, the world will know that you're my disciples. Why? Because the way you love each other because of the way you radically love each other. We're inviting the city to the fellowship table of the king, who just so happens to be our father. We're not trying to bring them into an organization, we're bringing them into a family. And the reality is, you know, today you're gonna have the opportunity to get in a house church, to sign up for a community group. And the reality is we can come into these spaces of community. We can come into a Sunday morning. We can come in with all of the cultural baggage that we all bring, our individualism, our fear, our busyness, our idealism and our pain. And we can come into all of these spaces and we can live with a veneer of community, with a veneer of family, but never experience it. Or we can say, Jesus, would you transform us from the inside out? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to the reality that we have a father And thus we have a family, and would you help us to live covenantally into our identity with proximity, vulnerability, and empathy. And when the world sees the way that you begin to love each other, they go, oh my goodness, there may have been a God that came to earth in human form, that lived and died and raised again and is returning to judge the living and the dead. Your most powerful apologetic is the love you extend to the brother or sister next to you. And I go, may God help that be true of us. So some of you this morning, you're not followers of Jesus, and I go, man, this is the time. We'll have some men and women at the Respond Banner. We'd love to talk about what it looks like to enter into the family of faith through the finished work of Jesus.
Some of you are followers of Jesus, but man, you just, you acknowledge that Jesus' vision of family and your experience in community are worlds apart. And there's things that you need to talk about, discuss, pray through. Here in a moment, we're gonna go to communion. Um, Cole, you can go ahead and put the slide up on the screen. Here's the question when you come back to your seats that I want, want to invite you to wrestle with. Where do you need Jesus to help you find and foster, to find and foster his spiritual family, your place in his spiritual family? Where do you need Jesus to help you do that? And so here in just a moment, we're gonna stand together. We'll go to the table of grace. We'll take the bread, we'll take the cup. We'll pray, we'll ask for forgiveness. And then if, if you're an internal processor, you can sit and reflect on your own as the music plays, or you can get in groups and you can wrestle with this question out loud. But I wanna invite you, let's stand together. I'll pray over you. And then we're gonna go to the table of grace together. And if you wanna receive prayer about anything, there's some men and women at the respond banner that would love to do that. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us Today, what we need so that your name would be hallowed. Forgive us of our sins, things that have been done to us and things that we've done to others so that your name would be hallowed. And God, deliver us from the places of bondage, of addiction, of pain, of evil. Deliver us from those things, Lord, collectively together so that your name would be hallowed, so that your name would be lifted up, glorified in our midst. God, would you help us to break the cultural barriers that keep us in isolation and help us to live into what it means to be a family of God. Open our eyes like newborn children to see who you are and to see who you put around us and help us to live in a place of covenantal friendship and relationship and love. Jesus, thank you for dying to forgive our sins. Thank you for raising to give us hope. Thank you for returning to finish the work that you've begun. It's in your name that we pray and give thanks. Amen.